All right, so we are live. Thank you to everyone who's joining us today. Today I'm live with Lisa Quintana. She earned a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University. She holds a bachelor's in communications and is studied Christian studies. She's married and has two children. She blogs at Think Divinely and teaches apologetics at her church in Wisconsin. And she is going to join me today and we're going to talk about some of the questions related to the problem of evil, is God moral, things like that. So thank you for joining me, Lisa. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. Awesome. So I guess before we get into more of the problem of evil, I'd love to hear a little bit about your testimony, maybe how you became a Christian, things like that. Sure. So I was not raised in a traditional Christian family. My mom was Christian. My dad thought Christians were all hypocrites and didn't want anything to do with it. So when we were really little, my brother and I were really little, my mom would take us to church and, you know, taught us some of the Bible stories. But by the time I was probably about eight years old, maybe in third grade, we kind of stopped going. My dad wasn't even going at all. And we all kind of just fell away from church and anything spiritual. And so I didn't, I didn't have any conversations growing up about Christ or any of that stuff. But I do remember when I probably when I was about five <laughs> going to church on an Easter Sunday, and the guy says, well, don't, you know, don't just say happy Easter. Say, Christ has risen. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I remembered that. It's like stuck in my head, right? So there was a seed that was planted there. And so, so I, you know, I just, all that to say is that I think sometimes there are seeds that are planted and then they don't germinate till way later. So, so then I, I fell away from God. And when I hit teenage years, I was partying and doing stupid stuff. And I was really sensing like, what what's the point like what I, I didn't see a, a point in life at all and so part of it you know the point that i thought was life is all about is eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die <laughs> right so i was just this party girl and and i was doing all the stuff that the world said that would make me happy and it ended up breaking me and my heart got broken and my life was in shambles and i did everything that everyone said that was supposed to make me happy and i it didn't so I was in college and I started searching and I didn't search Christianity at first because I, I was raised in Southern California and Southern California has a lot of new age and weird spiritual stuff there. And I was kind of like into that and I was looking into some, you know, different non-traditional ways, you know, that is, is there a God? I, I claimed I was spiritual, but I did not want anything to do with Christianity because I thought it was too traditional, too lame. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not into it. But it's like, God was using people in my life to always like drive me back to, to Christ. And so finally there was a guy that I met in, in college and he just had this huge gift of evangelism. He, he was just really genuine and he didn't judge me for my past sins. He didn't tell me I was going to hell. He just said, he goes, nobody will ever love you like your heavenly father loves you. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, is that what I'm looking for? <laughs> you know, it was like, so I, I I was a lot more open. And so I opened up the Bible. He told me, don't start in Genesis. Cause I'd always start in Genesis. And I would have the King James Bible. <laughs> I was like, what is this? You know? So I, I would never finish it. So he says, you know, he gave me a translation that was easy to understand. And I started reading the book of John. He said, don't, you know, don't start in Genesis, read John. And so I started reading John and it was like the Holy Spirit. Now I know it was the Holy Spirit. Then I didn't know. But it was the Holy Spirit just kind of like opened my eyes. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is true. This is right. And I had no apologetics training, no schooling, nothing. I was just like, I knew in my heart that this was true. And so I started pursuing it. And I started going to a local church. And I just went 
a little bit, you know, further into the sort of the experiences of God. You know, I, I love contemporary worship and I love people praying for me. And so I was really into the experience part of God. <clears throat> but then I went through some doubts. And that's where apologetics steps in. Because a, a thing that I love about apologetics is apologetics, when you do go through doubts, and who doesn't, if you're really perfectly honest, I mean, we all go through it, doubts once in a while, right? I mean, everyone does. It's just life is hard. And sometimes you're like, hello, are you there? <laughs> you know? And so I, that's what I love about apologetics is because when you have hard times, when your faith is tested, when you go through things that don't make sense, then you remind yourself why it's true and who God is and why the resurrection has good evidence behind it, why the Bible is the inspired word of God. And you can go through all of that and not base your faith on just your feelings because our feelings are great, but they're not always reliable. And so it's nice to have, you know, some real hard evidence. And so I'm wearing my my true evidence shirt <laughs> nice. because I, I read that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Sean McDowell, mm -hmm. Josh McDowell's book. And so it, it talks about all that and it has all that all that in there. And so it makes you feel like, OK, it, it's not just a feelings based issue. I really believe something that has evidence behind it. And so that's a little bit of a story, of, you know, about me and how I got into apologetics. It was, I have a lot of skeptics in my family because I didn't have a Christian family. So they would ask me, like when I first got saved, they would ask me questions like, well, like my grand, my grandpa, he said earlier that your grandpa was kind of like, yeah, well, my grandpa was really a skeptic. And he was like, well, what about Cain's wife? <laughs> like Cain, <laughs> Cain killed his brother and then all of a sudden he was married and he didn't get that. Cause it doesn't, cause the Bible is not written chronologically. And he, all of a sudden that was his hang up. And so he chucked the whole thing because of one thing he didn't understand. And he asked me about Cain's wife and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and so now I'm studying. Now I realize, okay, now I can answer that question. But back then I couldn't. And I would get questions like that, you know, and I would be yeah. like, I don't know. I just have faith. I just believe. I, I don't know. I can't tell you. So now if people ask me questions, I feel a lot more prepared and I'm like, I'm not afraid, you know, to answer questions. I'm not afraid of evangelizing because I feel like I've got, I've got a lot of good answers. Now I don't have all the answers. Nobody does. But I think the whole thing with apologetics is you get enough answers. You have enough evidence. It's like a court case, right? You don't really know hundred percent sure. Absolutely. For sure that that person's guilty. But if you have enough evidence, you'll say, yeah, that person's guilty. And that's all you need. And I think that's what God asks of us. You know, there, there's an element of faith that's always going to be there, you know, and that's what people don't like. Like a lot of skeptics, man, they're like, prove it to me, prove it to me. You know, <laughs> they want 100% absolute certainty, but you can't have that. There's an element of faith and God asks us to have that. So you can know a lot and there's a lot of good evidence to make a reasonable choice for it, but there's always going to be that step of faith, that, that final step that you're going to have to just take. Yeah, so definitely. I, I, I took that step and I, and you know, I mean, every person I've known that have taken that step, they've all had really peaceful lives and a lot of joy and, you know, their lives have been transformed. My, mine certainly was. I went from smoking pot and doing stupid stuff to like, you know, changing my life and being really good about, you know, taking care of myself because I've done a lot of self-destructive stuff, you know, stuff that just wasn't healthy for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was the transformation of, of my faith, of, of God's power in me through the spirit that, that changed me. So the, these are the kinds of things that, you know, you just can't, you can't say, you know, you put it in a test tube and test it. 
you just have to walk by faith, you know, you can't measure it empirically all the time. So yeah, those definitely. are the kinds of things that I think that people need to understand about faith. It's not always going to be something that you can, you know, have scientific evidence for. There's a lot of evidence for it, but there's just so much we can, we can say for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like in terms of empirically proving, let's say like God, I mean, we, God, at least the God of the Bible, is immaterial, spaceless, timeless. You're not going to be able to use your senses to prove that God exists. You can't smell God. You can't taste God because God's not material. God's immaterial. So Until you smell a rose. When you smell a rose, you're like, yes, that is heavenly scent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess that was wrong. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there, there's uh, one thing that I like to talk about regarding, you know, the existence of God. I mean, there's, there's enough design and there's enough things going on in the world that points to the fact that this, this seems a little bit like unrealistic to think it's randomly just fallen together by unguided processes. There's too much design in nature. There's too much design in everything. And, and with the Big Bang and all that stuff that they've, they've now shown, it, there has to be something that started this, right? So the way mm -hmm. I, I always go to somebody, it's like, okay, well, it makes more sense that, that some sort of intelligence started this. So let's give it let's give it that, and then and then you look at all the world religions, and you're like, why do you go to Christianity first? You go to Christianity first because did did Buddha rise from the dead? Did Muhammad Muhammad rise from the dead? Did Hare Krishna or any of those? I mean, none of these people did that. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, if that's really true, then you should examine that religion first. And to me, it's like, well, if God is real, which there's a lot of good reasons why he is because of all the design and all the things that, that sort of point to the fact that, gosh, you know, these things don't seem very random. Well, then what, which religion makes most sense? God incarnate, God, God, God coming down in, in the form of man to, to make himself even more known to us. Not only does creation speak of God, but then he comes and steps into a human flesh tent. <laughs> you know, so anyways, I mean, that, that's why I think Christianity stands heads above the rest because of those kinds of evidences. Because if you go back and you start looking at the historical evidence for the resurrection, there's a lot of evidence for that. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this, this is some great points. I want to transition a little bit now yeah. into the problem of the evil, because I think this is probably the most common uh, from Christians and non-Christians. You know, this is yeah. probably the most common topic that we're going to engage with when we're talking with people about the faith and you know the, the problems with the faith so the first thing i want to talk about before we get into the problem of evil is that often we say as christians that god is the moral standard that when we look at god he is perfect morally um he determined he maybe well he is he is what is moral so why is god the moral standard so if if there is an ultimate creator to everything um, I think it was Thomas Aquinas who said he probably would be the greatest conceivable being. So whatever we can think of in our finite thinking, the greatest conceivable being would be God. And that being would have to be perfect because that's the greatest. That's what you can conceive of. I mean, he's going to be even better than what we can conceive of. So that, that being would be the standard of goodness. And so it's, it's like he... Um, created because he is good he didn't have to he didn't have to make any of this he didn't have to make us but he did because he's good because part of the goodness of god i think is sharing so he, he he's sharing himself he's sharing his creation he's sharing love i mean love is where does love come from it's not just a biochemical response 
<laughs> I hate when people mm -hmm. think that if they boil everything down to materialistic, you know, if you, if you boil everything down to pure naturalism, I mean, naturalism says we're nothing more than biochemical responses to the environment. Well, you can't tell me love is just a biochemical response. Like, if, if that's true, then why would you love your grandmother after she's already died? You still love her. What, what, what is that? Just a loving a memory? I mean, to, to me, these are the kinds of things that point to the fact that he's the greatest conceivable being. And he has a moral standard that he gave us in, in the Bible. The Ten Commandments are, are, are a great moral standard. And I don't think we would have came up with those on our own. <laughs> I just don't think we would. And so I, I think that these are the kinds of things that point to why he's moral. And I, I've heard the arguments of, you know, then why is there, you know, if, if God created everything, if he created evil, then he has to have evil in him, right? I've heard that. But he, here's, the, here's the thing is what, what he did is he created us with free will. And so with free will, we have the ability to be completely free. And complete freedom means you can completely choose terrific stuff or really, really, really bad. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's freedom. If freedom has to be really free, that means you, you should be able to go all the way up and down the spectrum. If, if there's a limit to that freedom, then it's not really true freedom. So when God created us, he created us with choices. And to me, you know, that's the most loving thing you can do because he doesn't want to force anybody to love him. He is not forcing anybody. It's all, it's, it's, it's a choice. You can either choose to believe. And one of the things that I, I saw a quote the other day, and I can't attribute, I don't know who said it, but a lot of people will say, show me and I'll believe. God says, believe and I'll show you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a step of faith, right? I mean, there is. It's not blind faith. You can make a reasonable choice based on evidence, based on all these kinds, kinds of things we're talking about, like, you know, greatest conceivable being, why God would be perfect. You can make a, a really rational choice, but ultimately you, you need to make that step. You have that choice. You have that freedom. And I think in, in that freedom, it shows how God is even more moral because he, he allows us to be free. <laughs> so anyways, um, evil is not something that can exist on its own. Evil is ultimately a corruption of the good. For instance, rust to a car, you can have a car, right? But can you have rust without a car? I mean, you can have rust on something, it corrupts something, but you can't have walking rust running, running around or a wound on your body. Like you break your arm, you have a wound. But you can't have a walking wound out there by itself. A wound is, is something that, that affects your body. Rust affects a car or rot affects a tree. But you can't have that stuff by itself. So, so what evil ultimately is, is a corruption of the good. But here's, here's the key. Good can exist without evil. Evil cannot exist without good. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, you, you have the C.S. Lewis quote where it's like, uh, I can't remember exactly. And he's like, I had this, I, I had these ideas of what was, you know, good and bad, but where did I come up with these ideas of what is good and what is bad? Exactly. So, yep. Yeah. So, so that all points to me, that all points to the mor moral goodness of God. Because God, God is morally good. And he, he allowed, I mean, he allowed the corruption to happen. But part of the corruption, I think, is all about the, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Now, some people say, is that a literal tree? Some people think it's a symbolic tree. I don't really care. I mean, I don't want to argue that point. But what I see is that that, that is playing out in everything. 
good and evil, mm -hmm. the battle of good and evil is playing out and everything. And that started in the garden. It started with choices. And every single storyline you ever watch in a movie, every love story, every Marvel Comics movie, every DC flick, whatever you watch, it's ultimately every story is about the battle between good and evil. There is this overarching narrative about life. And to me, it stems right back in the garden. It goes right back to those choices. So what we're learning in all of this crazy stuff about evil and stuff like that, we're learning about it right now. We're learning about, wow, evil really sucks. <laughs> yeah, I that. You know, I mean, so, so ultimately I think life is about that. It's about, it's about learning, you know, the battle between good and evil. And yeah, and, definitely. You know, I mean, so, so the, the ultimate standard of goodness would be God in that. Yeah, battle. I agree. So I want to talk a little bit because we talked about this choice at the, at the garden, the choice to eat the apple, to go away from God. It's a choice that affects us today, obviously, because yeah. that was the introduction of evil into our world. So my question for you is, why do we have to suffer for Adam's sin and Adam and Eve's sin? Because obviously, you know, I didn't choose the apple. I mean, I mean, maybe I'll maybe I could be in the garden today if they didn't choose the apple. So why do we have to suffer for the cinema sin, this first, the original sin. Sorry, my words are all kind of. No, no, I, I, no. Um, that that's a really good question, and it's really not something that like people like to hear the answer to because the answer is not what you're going to want to hear. But the answer is because they were our first parents, and somehow sin is transmuted through us, you know, by our parents. So our parents will go back and go back and go back to the first parents. And when, when sin entered into the human spirit or soul, there's like a soul gene that is trans transmitted through, you know, through mm -hmm. parenting, through either, you know, the act of procreation or some, some, some act in that way. And then they don't know exactly how that physically happens because it's a, it's, but you inherit that. So you're born, you're born with a, a tendency to sin and, that's not popular today. Everyone, everyone wants to be the whole like self-esteem thing, right? Everyone's good. We're all good. Everyone's good. And there's a lot of goodness in us. There is a lot of goodness in us. We can be really good, but we can, we all have the potential to be really terrible too. And that's in all of us. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we would recognize that. So, so why do we have to suffer for, for Adam's sin? We have to suffer because we're part of the, the human race and it's all, it's all genetically somehow, you know, transmuted to us through the generations. And, you know, I mean, you look at any kid, you know, that you babysit or you have or whatever. I mean, you don't, you don't have to teach them to be bad. You have to teach them to be good. They naturally are very selfish. They'll swat at each other. They'll steal each other's toys. You know, you have to teach kids how to be good because mm -hmm. they already know how to be bad. <laughs> yeah. So our, our tendency is to toward that. And so, but, you know, I mean, I don't want to say that we're all terrible people. I mean, there's a lot of goodness in us. I mean, that's why God created us. He knew that we would we would have that. We have wonderful potential. There's one of my favorite scriptures. It's, um, I think it's in Ephesians. And it says that we are part of what, what it depends on the translation, but it says we're God's masterpiece or God's artwork or God's workmanship. And mm -hmm. I, I like to think about how, like we were talking, um, the C.S. Lewis great divorce book talks about how as your as your soul goes through life you either become better and 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 kinder through christ who helps you that way or you become more selfish and more self-centered 
and you become less human. So when Christ came to the earth, he really showed us how to be more human. You know, and what what did he do? He was a humble guy. He served people. He never got it. He never he he was homeless, man. <laughs> he didn't even have a when he went through the ministry for three years. He was walking the planet. He didn't have a house. He relied on on the goodness of other people. He lived in other people's houses and let them, you know, feed on the stuff. And he'd go to the next city and he was he was living humbly. He didn't acquire a bunch of wealth on on the planet. He lived very you know frugally or whatever. And so these are the kinds of things that he taught us. So he taught us how to be more human. And so that that's a part of what we what we can choose to be. We can choose you know to be more human or to be more selfish and give in to that selfish sinful nature that we all have and we all have inherited. So you know, yeah, definitely. It gets ugly if you if you continue to do that. And I've seen people. I'm old enough now. <laughs> I'm old enough now. I've been walking with God for thirty years, and I've been you know the the, the good thing about the only good thing about being older because <laughs> the other parts are not so great. But the good thing about it is that I I have wisdom now, and so I've seen like I I I've been walking with God for thirty years, and I've seen some of my friends not stay with God, and they've fallen away, and they become miserable. They they turn to alcohol. They got they've been divorced. They get angry. They're like they're just you know messed up, you know. And then the, those who have stayed with God have been you know learned how to be kinder and, and better people, and so I think that that's that's what God does for you. That's what that's what the transforming power of the Spirit of God does for you. And so, yeah. you know, even though we are born into sin, we don't have to stay there, you know? So we, we need help though. We need, we need God's help to get better. You know, we can't do it on our own. I, I certainly couldn't. And that when I got saved, I was 25 years old when I got saved <clears throat> and I had no problem knowing I was a sinner. <laughs> that was not an issue for me at all. Cause I, I was, I was broken for one thing. I knew I was, I was messed up and I knew I had made a lot of mistakes and I was really sorry for them. And so that wasn't an issue for me. I knew that that was that was true. But I know a lot of people today. They don't they don't do that. They don't embrace that. They don't they don't see their need for God. They don't see their they don't think that they're sinners. It's because you know the world tells everybody we're all winners and we're all good and all this stuff. But it's like you know if that's the case, look at the world right now and tell me what is wrong with it. Why if we're all good, then why aren't we doing the good thing? Why aren't we doing the right thing to each other? You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so evident that there's a sin problem. Yeah, I mean, if people like to say that, you know, we're evolving from in our morality, things like that. But you look at history. I love history. That's kind of like I love history and I love doing like apologetics, things like this. And the 20, the 20th century was the bloodiest century known to man. We had Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and all these people that are just yep. killing people in numbers that we've never really imagined before. And it's just a sign that we're really as – Societies progress, we've become more bloody and more brutal and things like that than we were in the past, honestly. Well, you're, you're exactly right. And a lot of that, you know, this has been argued a lot. And, you know, you'll hear this a lot. That a lot of people blame all, all wars on religion. Oh, it's religion. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Most of the wars are not religious. They're political. You know, mm -hmm. there have been religious wars. There were religious wars in the 1600s. And when, when the, um, you know, Martin Luther broke off from the Catholic Church and there was a lot of infighting going on there, true, there, there have been wars because of religious reasons. But the, it's not the majority, as, as you know, you'll hear. The majority of wars have been political. They're power plays. You know, they're wanting to accumulate more land, wanting to have power. And so in the 20th century, like you're talking about with Hitler and all those guys, I mean, most of these guys were not, for sure, not Christian. 
a lot of them were atheist communists or they like Hitler had this weird, like what I would like to call like a buffet style religion where he picked a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And he just kind of made his own religion, you know? And, and so there's a lot of that going on today too. People pick and choose what they want out of certain religions and they make their own religion. They both ultimately making their God in their own image, yeah. <laughs> you know? But anyways, all this to say is that, you know, part of, I think the right reason why we had such a bloody history in the last hundred years is because if you st step away from the Christian ethic that all people are created in the image of God, that gives everyone inherent value, regardless if you're a Christian or not. You're simply valued because you're created in God's image. So, so when you step away from that and you believe that there is no God, then what gives you value? The only thing that will ultimately give you value is the persons and who is in control. So you have you have these people in control, and they're, they're going to be the ones to say you have value or not. And so that's what happened with, with a, a lot of the murdering and, and all the atrocities that happened in, in World War II. Was these guys in power? Hitler's a great example. He was the one. Okay, the Jews were no longer valued. They they were told uh, they told the German people that the Jews were subhuman. They weren't even fully human. So you start buying into that, then you know that's how people were able to murder these people. I mean, it's ordinary people killed all those millions of Jews. It wasn't Hitler single-handedly, you know, shooting all you know six million Jews. It was ordinary people that Hitler convinced to kill these people, and he convinced them because he made them realize, in his own worldview, what he created was that these people were subhuman. So, so, yeah. so that's to me super scary. I, you, like people say, I think the world would be better without religion. No, it would not. It would be frightening without it because without the Christian religion, no one has inherent value. You, you basically, it's like it's like the Hunger Games, man. I always go back to the Hunger Games movie. Have you seen those movies? Yeah, definitely. So, so this President Snow, dude, he's the, he's basically the moral lawgiver, and what he says is every every district has young people. 24 of them or whatever that have to go and, and do these fi these fighting games to keep you know the peace so all of a sudden he's the one that's this dictating the moral values and that's that's what will happen if we become a completely atheistic world it's going to be whoever's in charge is going to dictate the morals man and it's going to be scary <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely a dangerous slope we could be going down but i think it even it doesn't always have to do just with uh Christianity, or you could say just directly with atheism. I mean, I think yeah. that, you know, you look at even before the rise of an atheist philosophy, it was, it wasn't much, I mean, it, it wasn't as bad as it wasn't like, let's say the 20th century, but it was still pretty bad. And I mean, it's not necessarily because of religion. It's just like what you talked about, the human value. You know, when people say that a certain group is more valuable than others, then they give you justification in a very sick way to say, hey, you know, I can kill and take and destroy. And it's just a really sad slope we've gone down as a well, society. One really uh, terrible religion is, is Hinduism. Hinduism believes in reincarnation. And they believe that if you have a bad life now and you come back and you have a bad life, you know, again, it's because you had a bad life previous and it's karma, right? So you just go through this cycle of rebirth and you know, if you if you happen to have a, a better life now, well, then maybe you know you'll get to reach Nirvana. And Nirvana is actually a state where you don't even have individuality anymore. You go into this like weird 
like mind consciousness or something. And so you lose your, your individual self. And in Christianity, you never lose your individual self. You go to heaven and you always have your individuality, but you don't have to like, you know, repeat it back and forth and back and forth. And then in, in um, India, if you have really super bad karma, then they're called the, the lowest of the, of the chain is the untouchables. And, and these untouchable people, they won't even touch them. They're afraid that if I even touch you, I'm going to get bad karma on me. I mean, it's, that's terrible. So they got these poor yeah. people in India that are living in slums because, they, because of their religious system, because of their, of their belief. I mean, to me, that, that's terrible. So Christians are going in there. Christian missionaries are going into India trying to help the poorest of the poor, the untouchables. And some of these, some of these people, one of the, one of my heroes of faith, her name's jo Joni Erickson Tata. She's probably about my age now. And she, when she's about your age, she got in a diving accident and she busted her, her spinal cord. So she's been in a wheelchair since she was probably 18 years old. And she prayed for healing and God didn't heal her. And she got really upset and she went through that whole like really hard time with that. Finally, she just ac accepted it. And it's like, okay, God's not going to heal me. I don't know why, but what am I going to do? Am I going to spend my, the rest of my life in this wheelchair miserable and angry? Or am I going to make my life worth something? So now she has a wheelchair ministry. She goes into places like India where there are untouchables. And there's, there's untouchable people that are dragging themselves around on these mats because they don't have wheelchairs. Nobody will touch them. So they, they're, they're, they're you know paralyzed from the, from the waist down dragging themselves around on mats man this is terrible so she goes in there as a christian and she provides wheelchairs for these people and their own country won't even do it because of their religion so to me it's like okay what again here's where christianity stands heads above the rest because you know they may get converted to christianity because of her kindness but even if they don't she's doing it simply because they have inherent value because they're created in the image of god yeah, definitely. I think that's what sets Christianity apart is that, that it's really the only uh, religion or worldview that says all of us are equal. Paul says there's neither Greek nor Jew, Gentile. I'm just messed it up, but you know what I'm <laughs> yeah, I know that. You um, no, you're fine. So let's, let's transition a little bit here. I want to talk yeah. an, about another topic in the problem of evil. And this is something I've seen more recently, and it's the idea that we may pray for small things, but they seem, you could say, almost – I've been heard it described as petty compared to the big problems in the world. For example, you know, us in America, we live a very, uh, even if we don't realize it, we're very wealthy in terms compared with the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, so we, as Americans, we can pray for the little things, you know, let's say like an ankle surgery or, you know, minor things like that. But then if we go across the ocean, let's say in Africa or Southeast Asia, places like that, there's thousands of people starving right. every single day. So why does it seem like that we pray for such small things, but there's such big problems in the world? Does that make us selfish? Um, why would God take care of some of these small things but not take care of some of those big things that are problems in the world? Right. Good, good question. So I think God's interested in all parts of our life. So I don't think that there's, I don't think you should ever look at your prayers as, Oh, it's too petty. I shouldn't pray for this. And God's in, interested in all the details from the, the smallest of things to the biggest of things. So don't ever, I don't, don't ever discount your prayers just based on, Oh, it's not, you know, God doesn't care what color car I buy or whatever, you know, I mean, if, if you want to pray about that, pray about that or whatever, that's okay. I mean, you know, God wants relationship with people 
And I think that, you know, we should invite him into the details of our, of our personal lives, but we shouldn't get stuck there. So, you know, we should invite him into the personal details of our life, but then we should also recognize that we are the body of Christ and the body as, as the body of Christ, we're the ones that should be going out and helping. So, so that's part of what we can do and what we should be doing is we should, you know, go ahead and invite God into the details of your life. Go ahead and pray the small prayers, but don't stay there. You know, get, get out, get doing something. If you can't physically go help then then donate to a good charity. And I want to mention something about charities. <laughs> people forget this and people need to remember what is the Red Cross? What is the Salvation Army? What is the International Justice um, Mission? I mean, these are all founded by Christians. It's, it's like the Humanitarian Aid, Samaritan's Purse. I mean, these are all Christian organizations, World Vision and Compassion International. <laughs> I mean, people forget that. It's like, what do you think the Red Cross stands for? I'm just saying. <laughs> You know, even the goodwill. I mean, these are all places that were founded by Christians. So give to those places, you know, give of your time, give of your money, you know, pray for those organizations, pray for the details of your life, you know. Um, but a lot of times what the reason why stuff's happening, the, the starving kids and all these terrible things are happening in third world countries is because of people, because of us. Yeah, you know, and, I mean, these the third world countries, what I've learned about missions you can't just simply drop off food to them anymore or drop off water because the militia and all the all the corruptness, they'll take that stuff and they, they won't even give it to the poor people. So you have to have certain ways of doing it. You have to infiltrate in ways that will not get that stuff to the, to the, uh, the militia. So it's, it's, you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff's happening, Zach, because, you know, really bad people doing bad stuff. That's the sin thing again. And God gives us free will. Right. He let these people do this stuff. Now, here's here's where faith comes in. Right. Sometimes we don't see justice this side of heaven, but I guarantee you there'll be justice. You just we may not see it this yeah. side of heaven. So yeah, there'll, there'll be justice. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know what I mean? So. So anyways, all this to say is that a lot of times people will just sit back and they, they they'll they'll pray, but they need to do stuff, too. We need to. We can't just not do stuff. We need to give our, our time, give our money, volunteer. If you have extra stuff, give it away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my, that's a great answer. I want to transition to another question here. And this is a, a very common claim that I'm sure you've seen and I see a lot. And that's the idea that the Bible supports slavery. So oh. I'll talk about, I mean, there's a passage in Exodus 21 where it talks about if you beat your slave with a rod and the slave survives after and it's fine, then you won't be punished. If the slave dies, then you'll be punished. So it's kind of like, because the slave is your property. It's basically what, I mean, this, the translation I'm reading, I think it's, I'm reading NIV um, says. Yeah. So how do you deal with the idea that the Bible supports slavery? Very good question. And, and it's really hard for us in, you know, the time that we live now to understand what it was like two, 3,000 years ago. I mean, just think about what it was like 50 years ago. Right. Just think about what it was like 100 years ago, <laughs> just 100 years ago. Right. The turn of the 1900s. I mean, look how much we have changed just in, in 100 years. So we're, we're talking Exodus was written is what, two, three thousand B.C. we're talking about. Right. I mean, that's like five thousand years ago. 
So for one thing, we cannot get our, our we have to get our mindset into what it was like in the ancient ancient world, and it's really hard to do that, you know, unless you read some books about what the ancient world was like. So a lot of the ancient world didn't have a prison system, and the prison system came later. But you know, way back when, I mean, you know, if you were a slave, sometimes it was it was a way to pay off a debt or to pay off something you did bad. And they didn't treat slaves necessarily like we did when we had the slaves here in America in the 1600s. I mean, it, it was we, we were terrible. We were much worse than what the Bible told told about. So, so what happened in the ancient civilization is that slavery was part of the culture, it was part of how things became civilized, right? And that's how they functioned. And they didn't have prisons way back then. And so these these are all part of the way that civilization became civilized. You know, I mean, we're talking, I mean, 5,000 years ago, civilization was barely, barely even started, right? Mm -hmm. So so if you think about that, you start looking at things, you're like, okay, well, you know, I, I can't, you can't equate what it would be like today, you know, with what we know about the, the slaves in America. You can't, that that's not the, the same thing. So what God did, again, this is working with our free will, you know, God doesn't condone slavery. He he just recognized it and he told them how to treat the slaves. So actually what the Jews did to the slaves was a lot more humane than what other nations around them were doing <laughs> because the other nations around them were treating them terribly. That's why they had, he, you know, he, he inspired the, the writings of this so that people would treat them you know, more humanely. So... It was for a season and the season's gone. And I, I think those are the kinds of things that we have to realize that there's a progressive revelation of God's best throughout the Bible. We're progressively learning more and more about God and we're getting better and getting, oh, better picture, better understanding. And so God is working his will through the free will of mankind simultaneously. So he's, he so he gives us guidelines. He gives us you know things to do and how to treat people. But he doesn't demand, he's like, okay, you know, you have to do this today, this way, unless you're maybe, you know, King David or Moses. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there, there are 10 commandments are there, and those are the commandments I think that, that most people should follow. I mean, we, a lot of people don't even know what the 10 commandments are. But if we just followed those commandments, we just did those 10 things, the world would be completely different. So that, that's part of what's going on, I think, is that, you know, people don't understand that, you know, gosh, we're talking ancient history here and things have changed. And God eventually re revealed to Christians that slavery was not OK. And it was the Christians that got it overturned here in America and in England. So the Christians, again, were the ones that were, you know, sort of the, the ones that got the ball rolling to get slavery stopped. Yeah, I agree with you. So how so we say obviously as Christians that the Bible is the word of God. And in, in Exodus here in the word of God, it says that if you beat a slave and they recover after a few days and don't die, then you won't be punished. That's what it says in Exodus 21. So how would you look at that passage? I'd be I'm thankful I'm living today. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, you know, I think what God was doing was just establishing guidelines because I think, again, he was comparing what was going on around around in other nations and in other nations. I mean, they were getting mutilated. Some of them were getting sacrificed. I mean, it was it was terrible. So 
So I think he was just trying to establish guidelines for a season in history. It wasn't something that I think it was, you know, he just had to step in and, and teach us at that point, 5,000, 4,000 years ago, how to handle it. So, I mean, I, those are the hard ones, Zach. I mean, those are the things that it's, it's hard to understand exactly what was going on back then and, and to, to know exactly what the circumstances were, how, how barbaric were people, how, how civilized were they? I mean, the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, were probably one of the first most civilized nations. You know, I mean, the Egyptians and stuff were civilized to a certain extent, but they were pretty radical too. So, you know, and then the interesting thing about the Bible is that is that the Jews became slaves. So, you know, here here's the, these instructions on how to treat slaves, and then they they were enslaved in in Egypt for four hundred years. I mean, so, and then you know, when when Jesus came, when people were were crucified, it was crucifixion was a slave's death. So even Christ died like a slave. I mean, so there, there's stuff going on in the Bible that's like a lot deeper than I even, I even get. And there's symbolism and there's stuff that we can learn from all of that. And, you know, I don't have the answers for all, all of that stuff, but I do know, I do know one thing. I know God is good and his intentions are good and, and his goodness lies in his omniscience. So his goodness is directly related to his all-knowing status. So he may have allowed certain things at a certain time period in history because of the way he knew that history was going to play out. And so we have to trust that he sees, he sees the bigger picture. We can't see that we're in the moment, you know? So, so God's goodness is directly tied to his omniscience. And so at that time, for whatever reason that was going on and that's what he said, you know, and you know, obviously that's not for today. Thank goodness. You know, we, we're, we're getting better. <laughs> we are sort of evolving, you know, at least that way, you know, as we're getting, you know, at least better and becoming more humane to each other and recognizing that that's not a good thing. Yeah. So I want to transition here. This is the final question I have for you relating to the problem of evil. And that's the question of, first off, I'll start with this because there's, I have a sub question here after this. But the first is, how can God be described as, a God of love if people go to hell? So hell was not created for people. Hell was created for Satan and the demons. And so that was not God's intention. So we have to remember that God didn't intend that place to be for, for mankind or for humanity. And I, this is my personal take on it. Um, Lisa Q's theology, <laughs> but I, I, I don't think anybody goes to hell that doesn't want to go there. I think there's plenty of times that God gives people to turn and to, and, to, and to believe in him and to have faith. But one of the things about hell is hell is for people who don't want God to be God. And Lucifer was one of those people. Lucifer fell because he wanted to be as the most high. The book of Isaiah talks about that, that Lucifer wanted to be as the most high. In other words, he wanted to be God. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. Talking about like the, the all the wars and, and the, uh, you know, 1900s, well, what was happening? Hitler wanted to be God. Hitler wanted to rule the world, right? Well, there, there's only one God and we're not it. <laughs> so if we can't submit to that, if you can't say, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that, I'll let God be God, well, then there's going to be problems in heaven. Heaven won't be heaven. <laughs> it won't be very heavenly if you have people in there that are rebelling and be, doing stupid stuff because we'll still have free will in heaven. 
right? Yeah. So, so hell is, is where evil will be contained. And, and so if, you know, you have a, 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 a lot of opportunity to choose God in this life. And if you want to choose him or if you, or even if you didn't have the right, like let's say you were taught wrong and you didn't have the right understanding of God, I think there'll still be a chance somewhere down the line for that to be corrected. But if you flat out reject God because you frankly don't want God to be even God, you don't want there to be a God, well, then he's not going to force you. He's not going to force you. So, so, you know, somebody said, you know, if I had a child and my child was, you know, rebellious, I wouldn't send, send them to hell. I, I would still love them. Well, God still loves everybody, right? But here's the difference. We're all created in the image of God, but that doesn't mean we're all children of God. You don't become a child of God until you're adopted into the family through faith. So even though you're created in the image of God, it doesn't mean you're his child. So when, when somebody says, well, how could, how could, you know, I would never do that to my own children. Well, for one thing, that's your kid. And you're already acknowledging that you're the father. But if you're basically saying, hey, you're not my father, I don't acknowledge you, then you can't, you can't even, you can't even claim, you know, childhood under God. You're not, a, you're not a child of God until you walk in, into faith, until you take a step of faith and believe. You're created in the image of God. That gives you value, but that doesn't make you a child of God. You're not a child of God until you're grafted in by Jesus Christ. And so that that's the difference. It's like, okay, you know, I wouldn't send my own kid to hell either. But that kid's already, you know, responding to me. He's already saying, oh, yeah, that's my, that's my mom. But if you're not even responding to God, you're not even acknowledging him, you don't even think he's, he's real. I mean, you can't, you can't claim that you're a child of God. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes great sense. So okay. last question here. So obviously the, the gospel is clear that through Jesus we're saved. So what about those who never heard the name of Jesus? So maybe let's say like a devout Muslim who grew up and lived in like in Iraq or in Af Afghanistan, someone who truly believed that Islam was true, but they just never heard the name of Jesus and then they die. And if they knew that Jesus was Lord, they would have became a Christian. So what about them? You know, that that's a great question. And I think only ultimately only God knows a person's heart. And so I, I'm going to trust God on that one. And I, I, I know that he's a, a good judge and he will judge justly. So if, if there's a way for that person to have known and if God could see that or if they, I don't know, I mean, if they could have gotten saved on their deathbed or somehow they have a, a chance to, to have the truth revealed to them. Um, I just know that God is a good God and he, he will judge justly. So I, I'm totally going out on a limb on this one. And I'm sure some people would, would not agree with me and think that I'm wrong, whatever. <laughs> I don't care, but I, I'm pretty sure God's not going to send somebody to hell if they never had a, a, an honest to goodness chance to, to respond to him. Now, it does say in the book of Romans that, you know, God has made himself evident through creation, right? So I think you can know of God through creation. You can have a sense of God. You may not know his name. You may not know that he, you know, the story about Christ or the gospels. But if you even sort of have a sense of God and you are in awe of that, if you have a sense that there's a creator, and if you never heard his name and you weren't, you know, weren't shown, shown the gospel, I know, I mean, God is a good God and he will judge justly. That's all I can say. Yeah, I think that's a great 
answer. I mean, we can't know everything, but I mean, we can trust God and that God is just. So I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. So I think that's the entire conversation, everything we had. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Zach. And I, I really hope and pray for your future. And I know you're going off to college here pretty soon. So go get them for God. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're closing that. All right. Thanks for everyone for listening. Have a great night. All right. Bye.